you go and you work as a as a professional. And I think anything you do, but especially law enforcement, because you know, guys like me, I, I had such an ego, I was such a a type A guy. I wanted to go get the bad guys. When I was on patrol, I'm chasing everybody. When I'm in narcotics, I'm, you know, I'm gonna get the big bust. I'm gonna do these things. I'm gonna make it the homicide. I make it the homicide and then go. And I thought I'd walk in there with my tights and my cape and be able to save the world. And the realization that you come to is people just die. Sometimes there's no explanation. And the explanation is I'm not smart enough or that connected with, again, whatever your higher power is. I'm not that connected with them where they're going to explain it to me. Sometimes it just is what it is. You can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. You just have to deal with it. Well, dealing with the fact that I couldn't fix it and I just had to deal with it was a killer for me. And that that is really, if I had to go back and trace where my uh, train started to come off the track, it was right about then, right about there and right about then. I, I'm sure it was wobbling before, but if I had to pick one point in time where I lost my wits about me, that would be it. This is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. I'm Jason Blair. That's Kevin Joseph Grogan, a former Savannah Chatham Metropolitan Police Department homicide detective who has a reputation as a straight shooter, who cares passionately about public safety and the people in the mostly poor, minority, and dangerous neighborhoods that for 12 years he was sworn to protect. Kevin has traded his badge and gun in for a pen and is now the author of two books, the 2018 book, Black Sheep, White Cop, and the 2022 book, Ruffian. This is our second of two episodes with Kevin. If you've not had a chance to hear the first one, I recommend you go back and listen. In our first episode, we discuss the difficult job of being a homicide detective, the impact of being one of those soldiers who is sent to fight America's long war in Afghanistan and Iraq, what Kevin views as strong leadership, and the state of law enforcement from the perspective of those who patrol our streets. At a time when concerns about violent crime continue and the nation grips with the challenges in the wake of the death of Black men like George Floyd, so much of the commentary and conversation is driven by politicians, activists, and others far from places like Brownsville, New York, the row houses of West Baltimore, or the streets of Savannah. That debate swings between law enforcement not doing enough about violent crime to campaigns to defund the police. Not much of that conversation, however, is coming from or between law enforcement and the people they serve most. The challenges of policing, being protected, and being policed rarely go into the details of how officers are trained, how politicians talk out of one side of their mouth about reducing police violence, but then institute programs to reduce crime that are likely to do the opposite. Rarely do we talk about how our goals of reducing crime are not always aligned with the fact that officers are not given the tools and training they need to be successful. In many ways, Kevin sees the challenges related to crime and law enforcement today as failures of leadership. Kevin spent more than 10 years as a detective in Savannah 
worked as a police officer and served as a sergeant in the U.S. Army, where he served in Iraq and Kosovo. He graduated from Westfield State University in Westfield, Massachusetts, where he earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Today, we're going to discuss the type of people who go into law enforcement, the price they pay, not just physically, but mentally and emotionally, the stigma that prevents so many of those officers from getting the treatment they need, and the anxiety and its impact on their performance in the field. We're also going to talk about what we can learn from the past few years to help us find a better way to police and be policed. And at the time when so much attention is focused on the criminal justice system, how we might be missing the mark when it comes to traumas on both sides of the equation that have left both the police and the communities that they're supposed to serve unmoored and untethered from their collective sense of meaning. We're going to look at the toll that being a police officer took on Kevin's personal life and the reason why he's taken to writing, both as a form of therapy and as a way to promote a better way of Uh, the one that got me, uh, you know, and it's funny because one of the big therapies for now is writing. But I didn't realize until I started writing about my days in homicide, just jotting notes down. There was a an infant death. They used to call it SIDS. I don't know what they call it now. Um, but basically, there's no explanation for why sudden, these babies die. Yeah, they sudden to, infant death. They to, yeah, they, they go to bed one day and they don't wake up and they go. So I go to this house and it's... Uh, I think they were Korean, but I walk into the nursery. Okay. And they're twin babies. Both went to bed and only one woke up and I sit there and I walk into this nursery and it's immaculate, absolutely immaculate, nothing out of place except for the regular stuff, you know, like a kid toy that's being played with it's in the right spot. So there's nothing suspicious at all about it. And then I'm talking to the parents who, Yesterday had two beautiful babies. Today they only have one. You know, and and talking to that and asking them the questions of, well, is there any possibility that they had a blanket? You know, is there any way they got caught between the mattress and what any number of ways? I'm I'm trying to flip it any way I can to find out. And of course, you're asking the parents to explain how their baby's dead. And I did it as gently as I possibly could, but it doesn't change the fact. You're trying to figure out whether they're responsible for or not. You know it. They know it. There you go. But this is an awful thing, but apparently it's it's kind of common. You know, I've been to 100 autopsies. And at the end of those autopsies, I'm always really, really hungry, which is a really strange phenomenon. But mm-hmm. I've talked to a bunch of other people that work homicide, and they're like, yeah, man. He's like, it's crazy. You know, I don't, I don't understand that. This one. I went to this little baby's, so wasn't even six months old. And I go to the baby's uh, autopsy. And, you know, if you autopsied me, you're going to see all the fat. You're going to see some scars. You're going to see some, uh, you know, broken bones from childhood or whatever. You're going to see evidence of those things. When I watched this autopsy, it was like opening up a biology book. Everything was perfect. Almost like it wasn't real. It was almost like it was drawn or, uh, 
but it, it just gave me an appreciation for what a masterful engineering, whatever your higher power did to make us. I mean, unbelievably extraordinary. And I, I remember looking at that and I remember walking out of the uh, medical examiner's office and I wasn't hungry at all. I was mm. devastated, absolutely devastated. And I went back to work, you know, you know, working my cases, whatever the shooting, whatever the murder was, whatever my partners were going with. And I remember there was an assistant district attorney who was in charge of, you know, child everything. And she would call me. She'd say, hey, I really need to report on this. Yep, yep, yep. I got it. I'll get it to you. I'm buried. I'm real covered up right now, but I'll get it to you. Another month later or another week later would pass. Hey, I need that report. Yep, yep, yep. I get it. And I fully, I think I fully intended to really get her the report. But you just couldn't. I, I didn't know it then. It. Yeah, I I didn't know it then, but I know it now. I couldn't bring myself to write that report or close it or whatever. I couldn't even touch the file. I had that thing so I, I had it so buried with all my other paperwork because I did not want to deal with it. I never wanted to think about it again. It it crushed me on a level because the thing is. You go and you work as a as a professional, and I think anything you do, but especially law enforcement, because you know guys like me, I, I had such an ego, I was such a a type A guy. I wanted to go get the bad guys. When I was on patrol, I'm chasing everybody. When I'm in narcotics, I'm you know I'm going to get the big bust. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to make it to homicide. I make it to homicide, and then go. And I thought you know I'd walk in there with my tights and my cape and be able to save the world, and the realization that you come to is people just die. Sometimes there's no explanation. And the explanation is I'm not smart enough or, you know, that connected with, again, whatever your higher power is. I'm not that connected with them where they're going to explain it to me. Sometimes it just is what it is. You can't fix it. You can't do anything about it. You just have to deal with it. Well, dealing with the fact that I couldn't fix it and I just had to deal with it was a killer for me and that that is really if i had to go back and trace where my uh train started to come off the track it was right about then right about there and right about then i i'm sure it was wobbling before but I, if i had to pick one point in time where i lost my wits about me that would be it mm -hmm. so what do you mean about your train coming off the tracks uh you know i was the i was a hard drinking I guess at that point, I was a hard-drinking, uh, woman-chasing moron. I was, I was my own worst enemy, but I, I had really I had come off of a highly, highly, highly successful uh, task force where we had done some really good police work. It was uh, our local police department in the, in the feds, the ATF. We had done some really good stuff. Uh, and then when we wrapped that up and I was in homicide, you couldn't tell me a thing. I knew everything. Um, I was smarter than anybody I had ever met. I, I was really pretty pleased with myself. And, you know, that type of attitude, it, it catches up with you. You know, nobody's as smart as I thought I was, especially not me. So I, I had developed some really bad habits uh, over those years. And again, I think maybe some of it has to do with uh, things I hadn't dealt with emotionally or intellectually uh, from the war and a couple of things 
processing just from my developing career as a police officer. But by the time I got the homicide, I was, I was a train wreck. I, I really, I had no, uh, my compass was off. My right. compass was definitely off. Right. You sort of lost your North star through the whole reason why you were there and the purpose. Yeah. And, and the, the craziest thing about that, and you know, it's Freud, I guess, you know, when you go back and you look and I go through that whole story and in 2010, before that, I lost my father. So my father had died. So talk about losing your North Star. My dad, uh, uh, you know, I talk about General Miggs with the highest esteem. General Miggs is a real good guy. But my dad is probably, well, without question, the man I respected most. Yeah. Must have been a tough time. Well, yeah. yeah you know, it was, it was a, a tough snowball of things. Just a bunch of events that kept happening and happening. You know, but that's life, you know, and, and everybody lives with that. But hey, I suppose now, not to get on a soapbox or anything like that, but to anybody who's listening, you know, I used to think I was the coolest, toughest guy in the world. I work with the toughest guys in the world, without question. Uh, you know, from military to uh, federal agents, undercover agents. Uh, and we all now sit around and we talk about how we all thought we were too cool to get help. Um, we, we were too tough to get help. We didn't need it. We had it under control. If you feel at all like you don't have it under control, talk to somebody. Find somebody because there's plenty of people to listen. I'll listen. There's there's so many uh, avenues out there that you can get it dealt with. There's no shame in it whatsoever. I understand the professional stigmas, but uh, you know there there's absolutely no shame in getting help just because situations like, you know, not unlike the one I was just describing, if they quote unquote break you, that's all right, man. It's natural. You know, it's, it's something, there is no shame in getting help. Uh, and all of my social media outlets, uh, you know, my name is Kevin Grogan. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. You know, if you look up any of my books, you go there, I'm an easy guy to find. And if there's anything I can do to help anybody that needs help to avoid the uh, mistakes I made, I'm, I'm always make myself available for those things. Yeah, I can relate to that. That's one of the things that I say to folks. I, I don't like talking about my past, but if you're somebody who thinks you might be walking near my shoes, you know, my door will always always be open to you. But you hit on, like a, I think, a, a very important issue. You know, so many times the people who face trauma as a part of their jobs, EMTs, police officers, uh, special operations, uh, soldiers, or just soldiers in general, they so fear going to get mental health help. And I know some of that might be pride, right? We have to be tough. We have to be strong enough. We see these other people around us, and it doesn't seem like it's affecting them, little do we know. But, or, or we're afraid that if the job finds out, you know, they're going to take away my badge, my gun, my clearance. And I know some of those ideas are somewhat outdated, but, you know, I don't know. It, my old job is my, my passion. It was my purpose, but it wasn't more important than my life and taking care of the mental health things are what preserve my life. And I just wish more people uh, gave that message that you just gave. 
Well, I, I tell you, this, the big problem is, yeah, a lot of it is pride and ego. You, you don't want to feel, especially, like I said, I, you know, very alpha male. Uh, I was uh, having to admit that you're broken in any way is no fun for anybody. But in a law enforcement military career, uh, you know, now you're starting to worry about security clearances and adverse effects to your career and that type of stuff, which are very real concerns. Because the thing is, if you're struggling with these things, do you really need to be in a situation where you might be in a shooting? Do you really need to be in those situations where that kind of judgment comes up? It, it's a very, very, very difficult thing. And, you know, you can go and get evaluated um, in a lot of places, but it's come a long way. You know, employee uh, assistant programs, the ATF has a peer group, some guys that I've talked to for years. Yeah, peer uh, support. Friends of mine. Great resource. Yeah, no, and there's and there's a bunch of that happening now, but you know, twenty years ago that wasn't happening. I don't think, uh, not that I know of anyway. But it's it's far more accepted. Uh, you know, I did a podcast for a long time with a man that I consider my brother, uh, Lou Velozzi, who's a retired undercover ATF agent, and we talked a lot about the mental health, uh, those stigmas and in those things, and how important it is to go. There's no shame in it, and it took me a long time to realize that you know i don't like to blabber about oh poor me or anything like that and, and i hope nobody ever takes it that way but you know everybody goes through something and i don't care if it's combat shooting uh whatever the experience is you know there's trauma is trauma no matter what it is and and it might be something that i'd go ah oh, that's nothing but to some people whatever that trauma is it's the most significant event in their life and if it's bothering you, well, then talk it out. And if it's no big deal, then good. You'll be through it real quick. If it is a big deal, then there's work you got to put in to try and get through it. And, you know, nobody, nobody can do that alone. Think of, think of the animal kingdom and the way it's set up. None of us got here alone. We all got put here. Uh, and there were parents around us and there's family around us. And there you develop social circles and whatever. All those are tools to deal with anything in life um frankly, why you, we would have all been eaten by hyenas owls and lions if we didn't form teams and that's what our team and whether that team is the people you work with or your family or your friends or just all of humanity that's what the team is you know we survive as humans because you know and, and i think i think trying to put a label on it because the thing is it may not be your closest friend. It may not be a family member. Could it may anyone. just be somebody that can relate. So don't don't put a, you know, I try not to yeah. put a label on it. And obviously, I'm not saying you were doing that. What I'm saying is uh, for anybody that needs this type of help, don't. If it comes from somebody and you can't exactly figure out why it's that person you relate to, don't worry about it. Who cares? If it helps you, get it out. Yes. Yeah, sometimes it's a random person you meet in the gym or the... It could be it could be anywhere, but I, I always say when you find your place, <laughs> you know, take yeah. the uh, opportunity. You know, my mother always quoted her father, who I never had the pleasure of meeting, but she, his saying was, "I know my own, and my own know me." Believe me, yeah, you you will gravitate to people if they're suffering and you're suffering from something. something you gravitate to each other. It's it's a you know, there's something out there in the universe. Don't know what it is. It definitely, I'm not smart enough to explain it, but uh, people find each other for reasons. And, and that's just something 
that's not only what I think, but it's been my experience. So, you know, I, I always encourage people, if it's bothering you, get it off your chest, do what you can, because, you know, no man is an island, no man or a woman or whatever. The thing is, if you need help, there's no shame in getting it. Can I make a pitch for this to be your third book? <laughs> uh, I, I'm actually uh, halfway through my third book. I have notes on the fourth book, so we'll we'll make it number Maybe five. Fifth. <laughs> I am. Um, I, I think that's that, that's an awesome message that everyone needs to hear. Not just the you know. I've I've always felt we've got to find a better way to take care of the people that we ask to take care of ourselves. But I think that that message, uh, and I think that overall problem of stigma or pride or all those different things we were talking about. I think it's a it's a universal challenge that that we need to tackle. You mentioned uh, your brother there, and that you guys had worked together uh, uh, as uh, when he was in the ATF. Tell me a little bit about that 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 work in that time period, because I think at least based on what I've read, that sort of serves as a foundation for a different way of maybe approaching some policing challenges? You know, I could go back a long time uh, and discuss a lot of those things. So specifically, you know, this one guy, Lou, so he opened my eyes to a lot of different types of operations, uh, specifically his expertise. And I do mean expertise. The guy's an absolute expert. Were storefront operations where the government would open up fake shops uh, and run them as businesses and they would uncover criminality. You know, they'd wind up buying guns and drugs and all kinds of stuff. But we did, I did a bunch I of thought intelligence. thought that part was on that uh, stuff. only in the movies. <laughs> so that is real. That it's, part's real. No. Oh, it, it's absolutely real. And um, here's a little plug. Lou Velozzi's, uh storefront sting, uh, an ATF life, an ATF agent's life undercover. He his book it, it's an extraordinary story. It's not one you see uh, often, but uh, Lou's a, an impressive guy. You know, in in law enforcement, he's one of those guys. And he walked into a briefing, everybody would tell you, "Oh man, I, he's the guy you wanted to be." So reading his book is very interesting. Uh, he's he'll be on uh, John Bernthal's Real Ones uh, podcast here, I think this week. But he's a super interesting guy. But on top of being a phenomenal and expert undercover agent, he's also a fantastic human being and, and dear friend. But he and his partner, a guy named Toby Taylor, who is still with the ATF uh, in a supervisory role, uh, Toby and I were partners uh, for a couple big you know, gang cases. Um, they weren't undercover operations, but they were cooperations between federal and local uh, law enforcement. Uh, and basically what we did was it, they were both intelligence led uh, investigations into street gangs, guys who are committing violent crimes in Savannah. Uh, the first one, Raging Waters. I think they were responsible for 40% of the violent crime in the city one summer, which is a, a huge number. And, you know, that was my first really getting my beak wet in uh, seeing how the federal system worked. Uh, and then I went out to a narcotics task force out in Liberty and Long County here in Georgia, out by Fort Stewart, 
and worked with the FBI and DEA on another uh, gang case. And that's where I really kind of learned more on my own. Uh, I took a more involved role at that point. And then when I came back to Savannah, we formed the Savannah Area Regional Gun Enforcement Task Force, which again was Savannah Chatham Metropolitan Police Department and the ATF and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And that was a really, you know, everybody throws the term community policing uh, out. Mm -hmm. We did, we very overtly did some community oriented thing. And at the same time, we were very covertly removing uh, drugs, drug dealers and guns from that same neighborhood. So it was combining sort of, you know, one of the things that strikes me about policing that I think a lot of people don't think about, that we ask the police department to do a lot. Um, and we ask people, much. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're our night watchman, right? You are our enforcer of laws when we need that. Uh, you're the people who serve us when we need that. There are a lot of hats, right? And a lot of subcategories that fit under that. And so the interesting thing about that story that you're telling me, mixing the community policement, policing with the heavy enforcement in the shadows, is it kind of combines some of those uh, models in a um, smart way. What was different about that approach compared to the way, let's say, a situation like that would normally be handled? Uh, I tell you this, so, and I'm obviously no expert, but I do have uh, enough experience in it to say, I think in today's day and age, especially with the uh, erosion of that trust that's happened since, I I would say, it's fair to say, uh, Ferguson, Missouri is where it really, really, really started. There are incidents before that, but Ferguson was really like the zenith of okay, we, we really have a problem with police. The thing is, from that day forward, you cannot uh, be effective in a crime reduction strategy without doing both very proactive policing, which is not a very popular opinion now, but at the same time, you have to do uh, the community very soft-handed approach uh, in communicating with people. And, and that sounds like they're two very different things, and they're not. It's really not. It goes back to what I said at the very beginning. Police work is just talking to people. All it is, it's communication. If you're smart about it, you have good leadership. You can melt them together. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who lived in Giuliani's New York, I, I was not always in love with uh, the intensity of the policing as a citizen, but I was. I d really did like its impact on crime. You know, a, a lot of people, you know, like one of the trends right now is don't arrest, you know, fair jumpers. And I was having a conversation with somebody about it, you know, talking about my time in New York when they had the undercover street crime unit. Um, that was a part of a lot of, uh, a lot of the challenging situations. I made the point, why do you, why do you think they arrest fair jumpers? And the person was like, you know, they're just being tough on crime or legalistic. And I was like, no, no, no. They're arresting fair jumpers because a high percentage of fair jumpers have guns. And that's what it's all about. And I think that's the delicate piece, right? Like your average person who gets swept up in that. I remember one night in the middle of Manhattan, I was walking down 
down a uh, down an alley in Greenwich Village. I forget. I think I had gone out to smoke or something like that. And a police officer stopped me. And the, and I'm telling you, the only reason the situation didn't go crazy is I happened to have a New York Times badge on me. and <laughs> I showed it to him. But he was like, oh, oh, sorry, sorry, right? And I said, no, it's okay. I get it. You're not looking for people like urinating in the alley. You're like, why is someone hanging out in this alley in the middle of the night? They're probably up to no good. So I think it requires a little give and take sometimes, right? Like things may occasionally inconvenience us, but if the officers and the department's hearts are in the right place you can find a balance through respect, right? You can find a balance. No, you're 100% correct. There has to be a lot of give and take between the community and law enforcement. And and politicians. Well, I I include those people uh, as part of the community. Okay. I I loathe that title. Like I said, I I have some friends who are politicians, and I mean that insultingly. Uh, but you know, they're elected officials and they're supposed to have the community's best interest in mind in not only in, in practice, but indeed, you know, well, they, they actually, need to go out and actually, I know, I know you put them as a part of the community, but I would actually say the politician's job when you look at policing is that they're the bridge between they're the leaders of the community and they're also the leaders of the law enforcement agencies. They should be the bridge between the two so both can be effective and both can get what they need. But too often, like in my mind, and this is just my general take, tell me if I'm tell me if I'm wrong, too often it feels like they're saying one thing out of one side of their mouth, right? Like the police need to stop violence. And then I'll literally see months later them instituting a policy that may, uh, let's say, increase the likelihood of violence and it might reduce crime. And if you're paying, you know, and I think there's a view maybe only reporters can get, but I guess if you really pay attention or you go to meetings, I'll see that they're not increasing the training budget, right? So, like, I feel like this is one of the real big problems of policing has less to do with the community and the police, but the people who, you know, lead both of us. Because I'll I'll tell you from my life experience as a Black American and also as, as somebody who's covered these things, I've never gone into a Black neighborhood where people have said to me that they want less policing. In fact, they tell me they want more policing. They don't want the problems yeah. that go with it. But yeah, go. Go for it. No, and, and very fair. I'll say very fair, but I will rewind to where you said politicians are the bridge between the community and law enforcement. I I think that's fair and true, uh, but I will say this. Politicians have no business uh, and need to stay out of law enforcement affairs. What politicians need to do is select uh, an official, a chief of police. Um, Sheriffs are rather political because they're elected, but you got to keep politics out of law enforcement. You just have to let them do, you know, the police job very, very simply is to gain voluntary compliance with the law. Okay. Mm. And sometimes that's as simple as putting up a sign that says speed limit 25. Most people are going to see that and they're going to obey it. 
they will voluntarily go because we've agreed as a society to most of these laws like murder. It's illegal. We shouldn't do it. But guess what? Still happens. So, you know, you get a police chief that is a professional and shows a proficiency to law enforcement and crime reduction uh, and you let him do his job. Okay, and you offer him feedback and maybe he changes the strategies that go. But as soon as you let political agendas uh, like you were just talking about uh, affect strategies uh, and affect the way that communities are policed, you start running into problems. And that starts with very, very simple things, enforcing jaywalking by schools or here in Savannah. You know, we have the historic district. It's one of the prettiest historic districts in the country in the parking is enforced there like oh my goodness okay but that includes some very very poor areas surrounding the historic district it's policed and governed one way then you get out to where if you park your car in a poor neighborhood and the street sweeper is obstructed by your vehicle they will ticket your vehicle and say okay you're parking here if you get into the richer neighborhoods or the you know, the welfare and what many people consider the white neighborhoods and your car is parked, the street sweeper will go around your car and nobody's ever going to say a thing. Mm. You, you can't do it differently. But that all is where politics, politics. go. And it's very simple. But you that's a very simple thing. But now start talking about violence, start talking about possession of firearms, start talking about narcotics, start talking about you can't police people differently because of their socioeconomic, racial, religious, sexual preference. You can't police it different. You have to do it same across the board. And as soon as you interest, interject uh, politics into that, it doesn't happen the same across the board. Yeah. And obviously that's a very we are the world thing because it doesn't it doesn't happen anyway. Anytime time you have people, you get those influences. However, you have to keep it theoretically the same way as, as best you can. Can I offer an alternative spin on your point? And I do agree with you. You know, politicians should stop possibly worrying so much about getting elected and worry more about being good leaders. And if they could keep those boundaries, yeah. Amen. And actually represent the community that elected you. But and I digress. I could go off on politicians all day long. You actually made me. Yeah, you actually made me think about a case. where sort of politics got in the mess or mix and in training and all sorts of different things. Do you remember the, I think it was in 2020, the Richard Brooks case in Atlanta? In Atlanta? Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. a 27-year-old African-American. He was fatally shot in a parking lot. I think he had been in his car by, a, it was by an Atlanta police department officer. And often, I mean, afterwards, I think Erica Shields, who... I'm a fan of hers. She was the police chief. She got forced out and she she had done a lot of work to improve policing. And, you know, first time I read the first story on it, I was like, why did this happen? But a couple days in, I was like, this is a way more complicated story. Do you, what are your thoughts on that case? Well, I'll preface it by saying this. I wasn't there, Uh, but I, I'm, you know, familiar with it. I've read the case. I've, I've looked into a lot of things, you know, it was a DUI stop, I believe at a taco taco bell. They went and they talked to him. Uh, he was under suspicion of DUI and they had him park his car, which was very, very unique to me because 
thing is, if you're in an investigative uh, DUI, the last thing you want to do is just from a liability standpoint, if I think you're under the influence, I can't let you drive your car anywhere because if you get in that car and roll a foot and hit something, you know, then the city's liable, which, you know, you get into all the liability. I try not to think, I think less about liability as I think about right and wrong, but that thing got broken down to, there was a taser involved. He's running, he's doing all of these things. That goes back to what we talked about earlier. You know, you're in the heat of the moment. You're in all of these things. I, I remember a time being in an, we don't have alleys here in uh, Savannah. We have what we call lanes because we're very pretentious. Alleys and lanes obviously being the same thing. Uh, but I had a guy, I had him stopped in, uh, he had a crack pipe or a, a, a stem in his pants pocket and I'm patting him down. And uh, I said, hey, man, is that what I think it is? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I noticed, well, when I put my hand in to remove the contraband, because it's illegal to uh, carry a crack pipe, as I'm going to do it, he put his hand in his pocket with mine. And I'm like, no, nah, man, I don't need your help. You know, stop. <laughs> well, we, we started to, I'll say fight, uh, but we started to, he kept trying to get it out of my hand so he could crush it and get rid of the evidence, you know, little piece of glass, no big deal but he dug it into my palm and I do not think mm. there was any intent of him to dig it into my palm or hurt me in his, you know, drugged out mind at the time. He's thinking, I don't want to go to jail. So he's trying to do anything he can to get rid of it. I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, keep the uh, evidence from being destroyed. And in the mix of that, my hand gets cut. Well, I say he cut me. Okay. Now, not a big cut, but think about the health ramifications of somebody of a homeless drug user driving his serrated edged crack pipe into your palm, you know, hepatitis, whatever things could be transmitted that way. You know, now I'm bleeding on him and he's, you know, getting whatever I have. I'm getting whatever he has because we've entered into this exchange. But my partner, who's on the other side of the car, hears me say, I'm cut. He doesn't know it's my hand in his pocket over a crack pipe. All he hears is, I'm cut. And he comes to defend me as if I had been stabbed with a knife. And it's a life-threatening situation, you know, which it absolutely was not. But how would he know that from his perspective? How would he know that from where he's at? You know, and it goes to show you. Words mean something, but I didn't have the time at that point to look at my partner, make eye contact with him and say, hello, partner, I've reached into this young man's pocket and he's, while he's not trying to hurt me or stab me, uh, I have been cut with his, with the edge of his crack pipe where he would have come over and said, hey, stop that. And it would have been done easily. All he heard, because by the way, it hurt. I was like, ow, he cut me. And, you know. It got ugly there for a quick second, but as soon as, you know, the situation ended, all the force stopped too. But now take that to the Brooks case and you see your partner's taser down. It's been deployed. This guy is struggling with him. Now, is he struggling to get away or is he struggling? Is he, who's been tased? Did he take the taser from my partner and tase him? You know, you're there, you're wrestling. There are a thousand 
things that could be happening in that situation. And if you're standing on one side of a car and only see half of it, you're not getting the, all, all the information. And you're right there in the thick of it, and you're still not getting all the information. So th that's how these things happen. And, and I won't even get into whether I think it was a justified shooting, unjustified shooting, how it, how it went. But those things happen, and they happen so quick. And they get disassembled by media and all of that kind of stuff. And all that information gets put out uh, before a thorough investigation is done. And politics get involved there where police chiefs feel they have to act right away to keep uh, the citizens from getting upset. Oh, people are going to get upset. Yeah, I, I feel as a citizen of the United States. In that particular case, the chief actually looked at it and said, you know, we need to look into this more. And that's what led, you know, well, about hired them, prosecuted them. They, they did yeah. all kinds of stuff. And both officers were reinstated after an uh, investigation was done and complete. All right. So that will tell you, you know, it, it went up and down, uh, but it was a knee jerk reaction. They went too quick. You have to wait for the investigation. And just like anybody else in this country, I want to know what happened. But I want to know everything that happened. And it's worth it to me, you know, having experience with investigation. I'll sit and wait the couple months, the year for it to get sorted out correctly. So it's dealt with appropriately, as opposed to let's act on what we think right now. And that's that's what happens when politicians get involved. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and I think, you know, that that notion that being able to understand that story that you gave is such a good one. Because you could see how that, your natural reaction to being cut and your partner's distance in that moment could have spun into something much, much worse. I, I, I was just oh. curious. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that could have gone horrifically. Had the angle been any different and I said, I'm cut. What if I went down and all he saw was this guy standing over me? You know, that, that could have gone horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, he doesn't know it's just a crack pipe in the palm. It could have been, you know, and it very easily could have been a knife in my rib cage or my sternum, a, a life-threatening thing. You know, what if, what if, what if? But that's what cops do all day long. What if? And part of that training is always, and it will probably never change no matter what we do, because in order to have uh, law enforcement professionals prepared to deal with these situations you have to go from worst to uh best case scenario but you always have to start off with is this going to be a life-threatening situation because it happens so fast and if you don't go in there at least halfway prepared and i'd say even a hell of a lot more than halfway if you're not thinking how can this go wrong how can this go wrong if something does go wrong, you're behind the power curve and, and it's already too late because shootings, stabbings, uh, all of those things happen in the blink of an eye. And, you know, it's, again, sensationalized in media and TV and Hollywood and all of these things. But when it's actually there, even even something as simple as getting punched in the face, which is not a lot of fun. And uh, it's happened to me a bunch in my life. But, you know, it happens so fast that if you're not thinking about it ahead of time, it could go really bad. And when you're dealing with guns, uh, which we have a whole bunch of in this country, if you're dealing with guns, it can go 
as wrong as it possibly could go faster than you could imagine. Right, right. Because if you wait to be sure, you know, what is that phrase? Uh, right. Better better to be judged by nine than to be carried by six. Judged by 12 than carried by six. But the 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 problem with that, the biggest problem with that is, you know, you hope that those situations never happen. But the thing I hear a lot is, well, police officers, that's what they signed up for. I don't care what you do for a living. And I can tell you this, having been a law enforcement professional, uh, I did not sign up to get shot. I did not sign up to get shot at. I did not sign up for any of those things that happened. Now, I was entirely aware that those things could happen. But, I, you know, for the $18 an hour that I was making, I was not lining up to get shot. I've been shot at. Uh, it's not the fun experience that you might think it is. And nobody signs up for that. It generally is a violation of the social compact. Yeah, no, and it's it's just a it's a downright scary thing. Yeah. But the thing is, you have to go and do everything you can to prevent others from being hurt. And you cannot prevent others from being hurt if you don't prevent yourself from being hurt. So you, you got to be on top of those things. And you go from, this is a really bad situation, and then you go down. You de-escalate from, from the word go. As soon as you go, let me see your hands, let me see your hands. As soon as that person voluntarily complies and shows you his hands, now the threat levels come down. It's not completely gone away because it can instantly escalate again. But unless you've been in that situation, unless you've trained, which police officers do from from the word go, from the beginning of their career, to escalate, de-escalate, then go back to escalate into these situations, unless you train yourself or are exposed to that mindset, it's very, very difficult to understand, which is why I don't understand. Well, I understand, but I don't agree with people thinking that they, oh, I know the cops should have done this and that. And I, and I know that because again, I watched uh, live PD or whatever the TV shows are. Goes back to your point. Weren't there. I was going to just wanted to say, this has been a really awesome conversation. I really enjoyed talking about these issues because I think they are so important, you know, and, and I think part of the problem is, you know, you're a police officer, you're, you're a detective, you come talk to the rest of us, you know, that could be your job, that could be blah, blah. We rarely get to hear the, the voices of those who have been in those positions when we're talking about, you know, these issues, but I wanted to just wrapping up, give you a chance to, you know, if you have any closing thoughts or anything that you want to say, go for it. Yeah. There's a couple of things. And, and again, I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk about these things because they're obviously uh, important to me. The thing is what, what people need to realize is the police really are, they're the good guys. They're out there. They go out every day for not a lot of pay. Because uh, it's not about it's not about uh, financial gain. I mean, obviously you got to make a living, but genuinely, uh, the vast majority of police officers are out there to do good, and and they get villainized. I think in you know these uh, very extreme situations. But like you said, if we look at the details of those extreme situations, if you look at them honestly, when these things pop up. We have to, as a society, with law enforcement, with the community, with everybody, we have to look at it honestly. 
we got to put down our biases. We have to put down our, you know, preconceived notions and look at things where they are. That's the problem with the justice system today. You know, we have everything. We've turned it into such a machine that we're not dealing with people anymore. We're just dealing with numbers. We're pushing it through the system and we're going and that, that goes into the jails. It goes into the courthouses. It's out on the street. We have to stop looking at things to try and be so efficient about it. We can't, the whole thing about law enforcement and policing is people. And you cannot treat people like machines. You can't treat every situation, you know, no shoplifting case is the same thing. Well, no murder is the same thing either. No narcotics, but oh yeah, it's, it's just a routine this. There's nothing, there's no such thing as routine because your life is very different from mine. My life is no more important than yours. Yours is no more important than mine. Uh, and there's nothing casual about it. As soon as you start taking the human out of all of these things, you, we lose touch with what really matters. And I think that's something you got to remember. The men and women that are out here serving our communities, they're human, right? And, and they're doing their best. And they're not perfect. Uh, and don't forget that, you know, I, I, the best thing I ever saw in my entire life is my buddy, Toby Taylor, uh, ATF agent, uh, sitting on the stand and he was explaining what he had done in a situation. We were actually, it was a search warrant situation and he had made a, I think it was a typographical error or, or whatever it was. It was minute, but the defense attorney jumped all over it and he called him on. He said, well, will you admit we, so you admit that you're wrong. And he looked at him and he said, absolutely, I admit that I'm wrong. It's like, you know, as far as I know, there's uh, was only one man that walked this earth that was perfect. And I guarantee you, I'm not him. <laughs> and an old man, an old man sitting in the front row of the jury box just simply said, amen. And I, I thought that was, that was perfect. I was like, well, there it is right there. Anybody who's got any questions about that? But the integrity of, of Toby to admit he had made a mistake, even though a very simple mistake. But the defense attorney can't be mad at him because he's doing his job. He's trying to create anything he can to make sure his client gets the defense, which is entitled to him as a United States citizen. And the relation to the juror, I was just like, that's about perfect right there. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. We'll see you next week.